Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Hi, Ron. How are you doing? Good. Thank you very much. I'm doing fine. Yeah, you're welcome. I I, I really, really enjoyed your book. And um, as you know, I've heard you give a lecture on the book, and I enjoyed the lecture as well. Um, so I asked you to be be a subject of mine. And we'll start with a basic question. Um, you know, your book is entitled Profiles in Peace. Um, it's a very good book. You profile six different individuals who are doing different kinds of peace work, um, not politically speaking, but uh, you know, from their own vantage point, and from mostly a religious vantage point. But what is it that either made you write the book, inspired you to write the book? Why did you put in the labor to make this book happen? Uh, okay, thank you for the question. Uh, I wrote this book over the last uh, four years. Uh, one of the reasons I wrote it is that most people abroad know only if they know anything about Israel-Palestine, they know about the political peace process and mostly about the failures of the political peace process. Uh, but they know almost nothing, as you indicated in your question, about people working on peaceful relations between Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews on the front lines, in the grassroots. Um, and I, I think it's uh, important to get these voices out to the public. I do it also in my blog writing uh, and book review writing. That I want people to know that there are Palestinians and Israelis working for peace in non-political ways every day, all the time. So I, I picked six people. I could have picked 60 and wrote in short vignettes, but I, I wanted to focus on people, most of whom I knew, uh, and I knew they had good stories to tell. Uh, some of them uh, made re remarkable personal transformations in their lives. Uh, others were kind of doing it all along. Uh, but I want the story of peace builders, not just peacemakers or politicians, to be better known in the world. All right. Um, so I... I guess this is also kind of a general question. You, in a way, you've already answered it. You, you know of a bunch of people who are doing peace work that are that's not they are not in the specifically in the political arena. Um, what kind of a, in a general kind of way, and we may come back to this at the end. What kind of an impact does does this collective work among these people actually have on the ground? I mean, you you know you find this work, and we're going to get to some specific individuals you write about. But do you find that this work really has the ability to change minds? Okay, those are two a little bit two separate questions. I think okay. the right. the the work of peace builders does change the hearts and minds of people in the grassroots who engage in this work. Uh, there are several Palestinian-Israeli organizations. So one of my heroines in the book is Galia Golan, who's active in Combatants for Peace, which is a joint organization. Anybody who's part of that organization, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of people part of it, uh, become changed individuals. Um, that doesn't mean 
that all these things have a great impact on policy, unfortunately, uh, not at this point. Uh, the grassroots has yet to rise up and challenge the governments uh, for peace in ways that I would like. But maybe in the future, as it grows, and I think the movement is growing to some extent, uh, that will change uh, as it changed in other parts of the world. In, in Northern Ireland, there was a great grassroots cry to end the violence, and, and that helped reach a peace agreement. Uh, we haven't had that yet. So the impact uh, uh, on society in a broad sense is still small, but the impact on changing the hearts and minds of many, many people is, is large. Okay. And th this is something I find myself curious about. Uh, it's not so much about the substance of what's in the book, but, but about the process. Um, so uh, let's, let's say Michael Melchior, because he's, he's the one person in the book I'm acquainted with. So you wanted to interview Michael Melchior. And by the way, all, one, of, one of the real um, virtues of this book is that all the subjects have been interviewed and they're large, you know, and the, 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 each chapter consists mainly of their, um, of, of their of, of transcriptions of their interviews with, with Ron actually kind of giving a running commentary. Framing it. Yeah, the commenting. Yeah. So, so, so I'm just curious, pick either, my, either Melchior or somebody else. I'd be interested, again, in the process of your creating that particular chapter of any one of the individuals in the book. Okay, uh, so I'll pick two. For the, uh, first, I'll do Rabbi Melchior, one on the Jewish side, and then I'll do one on the Palestinian side, if you don't mind. Uh, okay. Rabbi Michael Melchior um, is an Orthodox rabbi who's pro-peace, pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian, which means that he has uh, started a, uh, as a, a kind of standard Orthodox rabbi who came from uh, Copenhagen to Israel. But when he uh, was a student in the yeshiva in Israel, he began to meet people at a young age in the religious, the small religious peace movement of the time known as Nitzvot Shalom, uh, Pathways for Peace, Oz Shalom, Strength and Peace. Uh, and from there, he developed and and, and began to uh, meet uh, Palestinians uh, in, in, in both abroad and in Israel. And for him, and like like many others, including myself, those encounters I think altered his life, and he began to understand the Palestinian narrative as well as the Jewish narrative. Uh, Rabbi Melchior also, as some of the other people in this book, comes at it from a position of faith. Uh, this is a deep religious faith. He believes that the Judaism and Islam are fundamentally religions of peace and that they've been distorted by the uh, radicals on each side with the help of the media who prefer violence to peace uh, to cover that. So uh, he uh, has developed over the years, uh, not only uh, uh, in the political realm where he served in the in the, the parliament, the Knesset for, for several years, and as was a minister in government and active during the uh, peace negotiations in 2000 called Camp David II. But after that, he founded a series of NGOs in Israel. And for me, the, the one that's most important is called Mosaica. And for several decades now, he's been active in what he calls the Religious Peace Initiative, which is um, his way of reaching out to Orthodox rabbis in the West Bank and in Israel, uh, uh, Orthodox uh, Muslims from uh, uh, who are affiliated with with perhaps Hamas and others, 
and to enter into dialogue with them so that they can cooperate together in trying to prevent uh, conflicts, even small conflicts from arising. So he, he's got a great story. And, and what I, I like to say about Rabbi Melchior, uh, besides being a great speaker, maybe you've heard him speak in Israel or abroad, and a great darshan, he's a great rabbi, he has a congregation in my neighborhood in Jerusalem. Um, he is what I call a persistent peace builder. That is, he goes at it, ups and downs. The government uh, may be terrible next month, but he'll still be out there doing his work. A lot of his work is quiet, under the radar, doesn't make a lot of noise. But as he says in, in one of the interviews, he say he thinks he saved a lot of lives by doing mediation, uh, by by getting uh -huh. religious leaders to, to open their mouths and say things and prevent mini conflicts here and there. Uh, so I, I say Rabbi Melchior is the the uh, the uh, most important and uh, probably the most well-known uh, Israeli Jewish religious peace builder uh, who uh, keeps going uh, to this very day. And it's very important that he does that. All right. And um, I'm also kind of interested just when I said process. Uh, I'm also interested in, you know, just, you know, what it was like to to, to gather all of these interviews. So using oh, well, him as an example. Okay, if that's what you meant by process. So oh, this is fine. Your answer was perfectly good. Yeah, all of the people I talked to were very willing to talk to me. I made it very clear that they were on the record all the time. Uh, and I get great, great interviews from most of them and a lot of really good stories, anecdotes, uh, in addition to uh, the, their beliefs and ideology. So uh, I had several very good interviews with Rabbi Melker, as I did with, with everybody in the book. And uh, people were happy, to, I think, uh, to cooperate in this project uh, because they understood what, what I was doing, which is to help get their voice out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it doesn't make, you haven't seen it on CNN yet, or M even MSNBC, and certainly not on the other news channel. Uh, or on even on maybe on NPR, maybe. But you know what I mean? It doesn't make the front pages. So I, I want at least to be on the back pages. And and I'm glad for this interview to help people know about it. I, I, I tell a story. I, many years ago, I was at an international conference in a city in Europe. I went to many of those when I used to work. And <laughs> and um, talking well, about... Why don't you say what, what your work used to be? Okay, my work was uh, director of the Interreligious Coordinating Council in Israel for 24 years. We and who started it? I started it with a few other people. There were five of us at the beginning. And we brought Jews, Christians, and Muslims together throughout Israel, and in, including uh, East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, and to some extent the West Bank. And we did what I call interreligious dialogue uh, uh, as a method of peace building. So I did that for 24 years and I retired. And then I started writing books and blog blog posts. Uh, anyway, when I used to work, I used to be invited to all these international conferences. And one year, I'm, I think it was in Bucharest. And I'm uh, talking about the, the, the work I was doing. And uh, the Archbishop of Mozambique stood up. And he said, and he asked a Jewish question, you know what that is? That's a comment that may or may not have a question mark at the end. Uh -huh. So he said, uh, I have to tell you, Rabbi Kronish, you're the first person I've ever heard in my life 
uh, talk about piecework in Israel. I've never heard a word about it. I didn't know it existed. Okay, so that's why I write the, this book. And previous to this, I wrote about 15 blog posts a couple of years ago on the Times of Israel, my Times of Israel blog, with short interviews with a uh -huh. range of peace builders. Originally, I was going to do 15 uh, uh, vignettes for a book, but then I changed my mind. So I want to tell you about a Palestinian fellow. So one of the my favorites in this book is a man I've known for many, many years, Professor Mohammed Dajani. Dajani is from the famous Dajani family of East Jerusalem, uh, uh, grew up in Jerusalem. As a young man, he was a Fatah activist and went to study at the famous American University in Beirut. Did that for a couple of years, became disillusioned. Uh, moved to Jordan and then eventually uh, a little bit of England, but then he spent something like nine years in America, uh, getting two doctorates in government, one in South Carolina and one in uh, Texas. He got two doctorates, so he knew a lot about American government, went back to Jordan, worked in NGOs there. And finally, in 1995, he came back to Jerusalem where his father uh, at that time was ill. And when he came back to Jerusalem, uh, he began taking his father to uh, Hadassah Hospital, a famous Jewish hospital in West Jerusalem. And he was amazed to discover that the doctors, the Jewish and Palestinian doctors side by side, treated his father very well with dignity. And he was in total shock because he he only thought of Israelis as soldiers and settlers, and he didn't know that anybody be, could be kind and, and and treat him as a human being. So it really helped to change him. And uh, after he did that, he the next year he took his mother, uh, he and his family, he uh, and his brother, and uh, took his mother. They were going to Tel Aviv, and they got stuck at the airport, and his mother forgot uh, her asthma inhaler. So they stopped at a military checkpoint and they said, we got a problem. Uh, our mother was having asthma. And they said, we'll take you right now to the military hospital five minutes away. And they did that and they took good care of her. And he was flabbergasted again, a military hospital taking care of my mother. So these were some of the transformational events that he talks about all the time. Uh, that helped uh, change him to become a, a peace builder. There were others. He later founded an organization called Wasatia, Arabic for the Middle Way. He taught at Al-Quds for many years, uh, the uh, Palestinian University in East Jerusalem. And in 2014, he took a group of Palestinians to Auschwitz and a group of Israelis to a uh, refugee camp. And he got in a lot of trouble. Uh, by the Palestinians who basically forced him out of the university. But he said, I, I next year I'll take a group again because he believes it's right. So he's like Melchior, I call him a PP, persistent peace builder. You know, the, it might be very dark this day. And, uh, you know, he's critical of the Palestinian government, you know, which is not perfect either. And uh, and he's, he's he speaks that all the time. This is a Guy, not only does he write articles and attend conferences, he's on Facebook every day, putting out positive messages, uh, and, 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 and he continues to, to believe in, in what he's doing. All right. Um, I'm curious, what language or languages did you conduct these interviews in? I did it all in English, uh, no, no, except for one. There's one person who only spoke Hebrew. That's Hadassah Fruman from Tekoa. 
I thought she, I did, she did, did it in Hebrew and we transcribed it into English from Hebrew. Yeah. By the way, I didn't, I didn't, well, I transcribed all the interviews, but then I selected, of course, only the, uh, I edited it and only picked the, the best parts uh, for, the, for the book. But yeah. How's your Arabic? My Arabic is weak, whether we call it in, in Yiddish shvach, yes. not good enough, should be better. So um, I guess I guess I'd like you to maybe pick two more, two two more of the characters in your book, but maybe women, one Jewish women, person. Two women, two Okay, person. I get. It. All right. So um, uh, a Jewish woman who I I mentioned uh, before, uh, uh, is, maybe I did, is named Professor Galia Golan. Uh, Galia uh, Golan uh, grew up in America. Well. I went to the same university I did, but a few years earlier, Brandeis University. She went in the 50s when it was a hotbed of radical leftism. Right. And uh, she moved to Israel, I think, uh, 67 or 66, or maybe even earlier. Um, kind of, she thought Israel was, you know, a good place to go. And early on, she got involved in the uh, peace movement right after the 67 war, first with the Labor Party. Uh, and there was an idea of uh, trading land for peace. She was in the Labor Doves with Yova Eliav and uh, Yossi Balin and Avram Borg and all those people. But eventually she switched to merits and then we became one of the founders of uh, what was then the largest peace movement and protest movement it was called Peace Now. Now I call it Peace Later. Uh, but anyway, Peace Now, uh, she was one of the founders and active in as who was involved in many massive demonstrations and activism for peace for decades. By the way, it's still around. And in America, there's a group of Americans for Peace Now uh, still around. Um, um, after that, uh, she uh, grew a little tired of Peace Now because she didn't think it was effective enough as the decades wore on. And in recent years, uh, she, uh, as she described it, she moves from center left to far left. And she became involved in a group called Combatants for Peace. There's a fabulous group of Palestinian uh, former militia people who put down their weapons and Israeli soldiers who, as it were, put down their weapons. And they're saying enough of war and violence and let's create a uh, uh, dialogue and activism for peace and for two-state solution. So she's very active in that in recent years. Uh, and I tell her story, and I tell the story of Combatants for Peace a little bit, because it's one of those really important uh, joint organizations of Palestinians and Israelis cooperating together and deeply understanding each other's narrative and, and people uh, seeking to, uh, to live in peace together. Uh, uh, I, I would say combatants for peace is, and it's probably part of her uh, old peace now activism is also an advocacy group. Many of the others only kind of do dialogue and education. They're they're out there advocating for, uh, with their governments to, you know, to to try to change policy as well. So Gaia Golan is a, a Jewish peace activist. She's also a professor now at Reichman University in Herzliya, where she teaches one course a year on, uh, and one of her books was on peacemaking between Israelis and Palestinians, the history of the peace process since the Oslo Agreement, a fabulous, yeah. fabulous, important book. Uh, 
which I used. To, I read it helped me a lot. Uh, on the other side, I want to talk about Huda Abu Arkub. Huda Abu Arkub is a Palestinian woman, grew up born in Jerusalem, grew up in the village of Dura near Hebron in the southern part of the West Bank, or what some Jews like to call Judea, the biblical Judea. Uh, other people call it disputed territories, many names for the same thing. Uh, she grew up under military occupation where her village was invaded in the middle of the night uh, many times where she saw her parents humiliated in the streets and all kinds of tough stories which she tells uh, in our interviews. Um, but she uh, studied to become a teacher and her English was good. So in the days of the Oslo agreements, early 90s, she uh, is asked by the Palestinian uh, government to represent them in conferences abroad, first in Vienna and then in other places. And there she begins to meet Israeli Jews for the first time, educators. And like Dijani, she was shocked to discover they were human beings and not just the devil and not just soldiers and occupiers and oppressors and all of this. So she worked with his Israeli teachers and she attended many conferences and workshops abroad, later in, in America and in Boston. Uh, uh, and at one point, she got a Fulbright scholarship and goes to study at Eastern Mennonite University in Virginia, where there was a famous professor, Paul Lederach, who uh, now at Notre Dame, I think maybe retired by now, who was a famous guy, wrote a lot of books on conflict resolution, important books. <clears throat> and she writes her master's thesis on Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, what they have to say about peace. Mm -hmm. And she learns a lot of methodology of how to do conflict resolution and how to do dialogue, all kinds of things. So she becomes very knowledgeable in the field, comes back to Palestine for a while, and then goes out to San Francisco, where she uh, engages not with Jake Tapper, you know Jake from uh, CNN, her his brother Aaron Tapper is a professor of Conflict Resolution at San Francisco, University of San Francisco. And she works with him for six years in a project called Abraham's Vision, where they did two things. They had a Jewish-Muslim track of Jews and Muslims in America getting to meet one another, learn about each other, and Palestinian-Israeli track, Palestinian students and Jewish students, Palestinian-Jewish track, getting to meet each other and learn each other's narratives. So she does that for six years. Finally, she comes home to Palestine as the eldest of, I think it's 11 or 12 children uh, and an elderly mother. So she's back in Dura where she grew up and she's invited to be the regional coordinator of, coordinator of the Alliance for Middle East Peace, OMEP, Alliance for Middle East Peace, which is an organization was started in 2004 in Washington, D.C. I was there the first two years uh, at the initial meetings, the Alliance for Middle East Peace um, uh, helped the U.S. Congress allocate $10 million a year to Israeli and Palestinian organizations that are working on education, dialogue, reconciliation through a program called CMM, Conflict mitigation and management. Notice what's missing. Resolution. We mitigate and manage. Resolution is postponed. 
Uh, and so all map Alliance for Middle East Peace uh, coordinates the work of uh, many organizations on the ground and Huda is involved in uh, a project which is called capacity building that relates to your question earlier about impact. So they want to make the organization stronger and 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 help them fundraise and they're developing an international fund and uh, she's a, a uh, an amazing personality, also in my PP category, persistent peace builder. She's out there every day fighting and trying, despite all the obstacles and eggshells and and and, and challenges. Uh, uh, she doesn't give up, uh, uh, and she's just a fabulous, fabulous peace builder. One of the be best I know, and it was a great honor and privilege to be able to meet her and interview her. Uh -huh. I'm good. Good. Um, so you got another one for us? I got two more. Why not? Well, an Israeli, an Israeli woman. Oh, no, an Israeli woman. Okay. No, Ready no, for no, a Muslim woman. Muslim woman. Muslim. Uh, no, that was a Muslim woman. Huda was a Muslim okay. woman. Oh, sorry, Israeli right, right. woman. I'll give you an Israeli woman. This is, this is my third woman. There are three women and three men in the book. So the Israeli woman, Jewish woman, is named Hadassah Fruman. Hadassah is a real character. And so was her husband, Rabbi Menachem Fruman. Uh, they, she grew up at a kibbutz, a religious kibbutz in the galley called Kibbutz Lavi. Her father was to the left, her mother was to the right. Uh, but after studying at the Hebrew University, she married Rav, Rabbi Menachem, uh, who uh, decided, they both decided in after 67, to belong to the uh, settler movement. And they settled in a place called Tekoa, 15 minutes south of Jerusalem, like in 69, something like that. And she's lived in Tekoa ever since. She was married to this famous rabbi who was this iconoclastic, religious, orthodox peacenik with a long white beard, who uh, engaged in dialogue with Sheikh Yassin of Hamas and all kinds of people. and and had this humanistic religious uh, point of view, which was often in the press. Um, and he was a real uh, uh, a kind of religious, orthodox, peacenik, kind of like Melchior, but very different in his personality. Um, and after he passed away, I think it's about eight or nine years ago by now, she continued his work. And she is involved in a group in uh, in a place called Gush Etzion, just... 15 minutes south of Jerusalem, where Palestinians and Israeli Jews work together uh, uh, in dialogue with youth, with women, and all kinds of projects um, in a group called Shorashim Judor, Roots. Um, it's the only group of its kind in the West Bank. She's committed to it, and she's very active with it from the beginning. Uh, and they are part of a larger group called Land for All. This is a sort of new philosophy in recent years where somehow or other the land can be shared. There can be uh, room for everybody. Uh, and uh, the politicians will work on the political side and we'll work on how we can live together. And we're demonstrating for you now how we do it in our region. Uh, so she's a... Very interesting woman, very different. Uh, also uh, studies and teaches Jewish mysticism, Zohar, uh, but was a great uh, 
pleasure to interview. And uh, she was someone I met, uh, didn't know before. And I was glad to be introduced to her and, and include her in the book. So I wonder, since you say that, you know, they're, they're out on the, they're out on the West Bank, they're in Tekoa, and they're, you know, they're sort of practicing what they preach. Do you have a sense of what Arab, uh, you know, Palestinian and Jewish life is like in that region because of their work? Or is that, is that too kind of abstract a question? I don't have a sense enough about it because I don't, you know, uh, hang out there very much. Uh, I think they have, they're having some influence in their little local area uh, uh, with, with the, you know, they work with a, kind of a one Palestinian extended family uh, who has influence in their village and they're uh, increasing to work with, with uh, Jews in the neighborhood who, um, shall we say, were not exposed to the Palestinian neighborhood, the neighbors before. But I don't know enough about it. I, I, I would okay. say their work is probably slow and incremental, but I, I, I'd have to okay. ask. All right. So um, give me one more. One more. Know. Okay, we got one more. Oh, Let's see. Who do we forget? Uh, oh, yes. One more is a Christian fellow. We have to have one Christian. Bishop Munib Yunan, the Lutheran Bishop of Jerusalem for some 20 years, was born in Beersheba. He considers himself a refugee from Beersheba. His family left Beersheba and came to Jerusalem. In the 48 war, they hid in a uh, Greek Orthodox church compound in the old city, which is where he grew up. Um, his parents uh, were Lutheran, which is a, a very minor religion, uh, a, a small religious group in Israeli society. And they sent him to Lutheran school, a famous school called Talita Kumi, which used to be in downtown Jerusalem and then moved to the Bethlehem area. As he grew up, he became interested in theology, so he won a scholarship to study in Finland, of all places. And I think he spent something like six years in Finland uh, where he studied theology. His MA thesis was on Isaiah. And we talk a lot about Isaiah, he and I. So he and I met many years ago. We founded a little dialogue group called Jonah Group. We had, uh -huh. um, I brought the, the Jews, which were rabbis and educators and other people interested, and he would bring a diversity of Christians, local Christians, Catholic, uh, Protestant, Orthodox. And for several years, we would meet and learn and talk about contemporary issues. And uh, it was a great group uh, and it worked for many years. He talks about it a lot and in the book and on our lectures together. And one of my favorite stories uh, about Bishop Yunnan is uh, in, uh, I think it's 2002, in the height of the Intifada, the second uprising, we were invited by Temple Emanuel, the Reformed Cathedral in New York City, to attend a clergy institute in New York. And they flew three of us over, me and Bishop Yunnan and a, 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 another Arab Muslim fellow, an educator. And uh, we spoke at, uh, we spent nine days together. We spoke at Temple Emanuel. We went up to Boston. We went to Chicago. We spoke in Jewish settings and Christian settings. Um, and 
the story I tell is that every time we would speak, we would each have a, a brief introduction, and then we people would ask questions. And every time uh, in his introduction, he would say something along the lines of, the source of the problem in Israel-Palestine relations is the occupation, the occupation of Israel, military occupation. And I would ask, often ask what I thought of that. And, and I would often say that I think there are two sources of, to the problem. That may be one. And there's the other side is the refusal of major portions of the Palestinian people to recognize the existence of the Jewish state. Um, and, you know, that's a problem, too. So we did that for nine days. And about uh, we get home and about a month later, we had a conference of reform rabbis in Israel, and uh, we held a panel discussion in my organization's uh, center, Interreligious Coordinating Council. The three of us spoke to about 40 rabbis. And he gave his introduction, and I did mine. And then one of the rabbis said, what do you think is the problem, the main problem here in, the, in, in resolving the conflict? And he said, there are two sources of the problem, okay? So I said, nine dialogue, days of dialogue on the road were worth it, <laughs> okay? Because we each heard each other's narrative enough times to know that there's, it, there are problems on both sides of the equation. Neither side is, is perfect. So Bishop Yunan went on to be the first Palestinian Christian president of the World Lutheran Federation, which he did for seven years. And among other things, he negotiated an agreement with the Vatican and, and, and the Lutherans and the, the, the Vatican people uh, after 500 years of Luther are now in dialogue and signed some big agreement. And, and you know, it was a big deal in intra or ecumenical Christian relations. And then he comes back to Israel and he's involved in a thing called the Council of Religious Institutions for the Holy Land, where he works, he and other Christian leaders meet with representatives from the chief rabbis and the head office of the Muslim Qadi of, of Palestine. And they did this for several years and, and, and did a lot of really good things together. So Bishop Yudan's got a great story to tell. And he's in my PP category, persistent peace builder. He's still at it. Uh -huh. uh, in ways. So that's the, so we got all six now. I'm aware. All right. Okay, is anybody right. going to read the book if they are all six? Well, I hope so because there's a lot of there's a lot more in the book. It's really wonderful to hear all their voices through these interviews that, that you've conducted and transcribed. So it's certainly I, I I think I said this at the beginning. I, I think this is an interesting book. I think it's an important book. It's certainly an eye-opening book in the sense that you know you deal with individuals and organizations and a whole stratum of uh, of work that like you said at the beginning, doesn't make it, that doesn't even make it to Fox News, much less CNN. <laughs> um, so uh, that's that's one reason why I wanted to talk to you about it. And hopefully uh, it'll, it'll get some listenership on New, New Books Network. Uh, I guess uh, prognostication is always a difficult science. It's not a science. It's not even an art. But one thing, one thing this book shows, of course, as I just said, there's a, there's a lot of work going on that's, you know, tachad ha-shulchan, it's, you know, beneath the table, at least in terms of the general public's view of what's going on in Israel. Um, what kind of, 
what kind of, I, I, I don't want to use the word progress, but, you know, what kind of movement, which may just be a, a synonym for progress, do you see possible based on not only the work of these six individuals you highlight, but people like them, given how difficult it, it's been to really come to a peace agreement? So uh, people who uh, write about this stuff talk about top down and bottom up. Top is the great political leaders that we elect in our countries who have lots of wisdom and, uh, you know, ideas, as it were. And bottom up are all the grassroots organizations that say, hey, we're tired of war and violence. We'd like peace. So uh, we need more bottom up and more top down. Right now, we don't have enough of either one. But I would like to uh, answer your question by going back and uh, sharing one or two stories, which I do share in the book. Uh, when I moved to Israel in 1979, Sadat uh, and Begin and Carter had just signed three months earlier a peace agreement with Egypt. Uh, some of your listeners may know that we had four or five wars with Egypt. So if you had asked anybody back in, you know, 76, before Sadat came to Jerusalem in 77, what are the chances that Israel is going to make a peace agreement with Egypt? What's the answer? Zero. Okay. Then we go forward. Uh, one of our great soldiers, commander-in-chief of the Army, Six-Day War, spent his whole life in the Army, was a fellow named Yitzhak Rabin, becomes prime minister second time, June 1992, right? Uh in the first intifada, he's famous for having said, what? He, I'm going to break their bones. Right. right? And he was a military guy. Only force is going to work. Now in 1992, he's convinced by Shimon Peres and Yossi Balin, some of the people in the government, let's try a back-channel talk with the Palestinians and see what happens. Who in their right mind thought that Rabin is going to agree to a back-channel talk with Palestinians? Nobody. And 10 months later, after 10 months of secret negotiations, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin shake hands on the White House lawn. Okay? Ask anybody the year before, was that in the cards? Never. Okay? So um, what I'm trying to say by these stories, and I could give other examples, is that we don't know which personalities are going to arise and what sorts of circumstances you know, in history, in American history, uh, Nixon went to China, right? Who thought Menachem Begin, Menachem Begin, if anybody doesn't know, was a crazy Hayrut right-winger for, for decades, is going to make peace with Egypt, right? When when I, I was living in America when Menachem Begin, people thought the earth was, the Israel was going to fall into the sea when Menachem Begin was like, because he had given so many crazy speeches for so many decades, right? And he makes peace with Egypt. So, a lot of surprises have happened. And Menachem Begin, of course, was from a right-wing party. Um, in 1998, under Clinton, after the Oslo Accords, Clinton was pushing further. Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister and elected in 96. 1998, Clinton and everybody, they go to Y River Plantation outside of Washington. They have a negotiation and they sign a memorandum and agreement. 
he shook hands with Yasser Arafat. And you see this pen? It's not the one he used, yeah. but he did use a pen. And he did once sign an agreement. And, you know, who thought he would do that? Because only five years before he said, I'm opposed to Oslo process, right? So I give these examples, and I, I give more to say that we don't know when and what. And therefore, uh, I, it, even though the current situation looks fairly bleak, surprises can always happen. Uh, I'll tell you uh, just another sort of anecdote. Uh, a few days ago, I gave a a book talk for a class at Montclair State University in New Jersey, which I'd never oh. heard of before. Someone led me to a Palestinian professor there, a guy who's lived, grew up in Jerusalem, named Saliba Sarsour, who's teaching 38 years in that university. And he has a thing, I think it's called the Jerusalem Peace Institute. Um, and before the talk, we had a phone call. And he said he's doing research now with a fellow named Daniel Kurtzer from Princeton, who was the ambassador to Israel of the USA, and I knew, I knew him well. And they and a team of people are now studying 11 new proposals for what's called confederation between Israel, Palestinian, and Jordan, and other people. New ideas are being floated, and they're going to kind of like study it and see what, you know, produce a paper. Huh. Which means there are 11 people at least working on out-of-the-box ideas, and you don't know about it. Nobody knows about it because it hasn't been made public yet. So be prepared for some surprises. Uh, there are a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that uh, Melchior, Rabbi Melchior, does all kinds of things behind the scenes, and then one day, you know, he'll, maybe he'll announce a breakthrough. Okay. I agree that it doesn't look... If you look at the shot the uh, simple reality of Israeli and, Pal and Palestinian politics, you know, it doesn't look promising, but who knows? Okay, so one, one final question about you personally. What, what are you working on now? Anything, you got a project? Uh, I don't have another project yet. My project right now in the months ahead is, uh, is uh, doing lots of book talks on Zoom and some in person. I spoke to a friend earlier who told me he was working on a digital patent where you could sign books on Zoom and send them to, to, to people, but he didn't finish it. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of talking about this. I'm thinking about writing uh, perhaps another book on Peace Builders. If, uh, we'll see. If, I'm getting some encouragement from people like you and others say, hey, we want to hear more. Originally, yeah. I was going to write about fifteen vignettes. Maybe I'll do a. Maybe I'll do that. I have my own, uh, as we're a little publishing, uh, self-publishing now, and I know how to do it. So I don't need to wait for the big publishers. And I, I don't think I'll be a bestseller. So I'll do that. I do still have my blog on the Times of Israel, Ron Cronish Times of Israel, where I, you know, continue to write about these kinds of things. So we'll see. Okay. Well, Rabbi Dr. Cronish, it's been a real pleasure talking to you over this uh, over this call, and I wish I wish you luck. I hope you sell a lot of copies, and I hope this interview helps sell a couple more. So thank you very much, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, and Shabbat Shalom.